I'm Aries Joe, Director of Outreach and Education at Parting Stone, and you're listening to the Death Curious Podcast. Death is really scary, and it's hard to talk about honestly. We are here to change that. Our mission is to eliminate death avoidance and bring people together through death positive education. This week, I'm going to give you a content warning. This episode is all about suicide and grief from suicide loss. This topic might be triggering or challenging for some folks, so if that's you, skip this one and join us next month. If you or a loved one struggle with suicidal ideation, call or text 988 to reach the National Suicide and Crisis Hotline. This week, I am so excited to bring Dr. Sarah Murphy back to the podcast to talk about destigmatizing suicide, suicidality, and surviving the loss of a loved one to suicide. Dr. Murphy is a death educator, certified thanatologist, and suicidologist with 15 years of scholarly, pedagogical, and professional experience in the field. She's a faculty member at the University of Rhode Island, where she teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in the fields of thanatology and suicidology. In this episode, we dive into why suicide has always been a stigmatized cause of death, even though suicidality is a widespread occurrence across humanity, and ways that we can work towards dismantling that stigma. We also cover how dismantling suicide stigma helps folks who ideate suicide feel safer in seeking and getting help, and also allows us to better support people who are grieving the loss of a loved one to suicide. Here is part one of my conversation with Dr. Sarah Murphy. Welcome back to the podcast for the third time, Dr. Sarah Murphy. You are now officially the most frequent guest on the Death Curious, formerly Death Care Decoded podcast, which is super cool. Wow, that is a huge honor. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. I you love have that. a lot of very, very useful knowledge and information, and we appreciate you sharing it. So I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So for those of you that don't know, Dr. Murphy is a thanatologist and suicidologist and prolific educator in the death care space for funeral professionals and beyond. What what did I miss there? What else do we want people to know? Um, well, I'm also a faculty member at the University of Rhode Island, as well as Marion University's graduate program in thanatology. So a lot of teaching both formally and then teaching in terms of public education and professional development as well. Awesome. All the things, all the things. Yes. Why have one job when you can have three? <laughs> exactly. That's how I've always lived my life. Yes. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited to have you back on the podcast today to talk about something that's really tender and close to my heart personally and is something that you specialize in which is loss and death to suicide, suicidality, and these things. Listeners are very familiar now with my backstory of losing my mom to suicide when I was a teenager. And I have been infinitely thankful for the education that you do around suicidality, around suicide-related grief and loss, because it is something that is so easily disenfranchised and so often disenfranchised mm -hmm. in wider culture, even in death care and grief spaces. And you do a lot of work to destigmatize that and to educate people about the reality of it, how to care for people who are grieving a loss from that way of going and 
yeah, I, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast to talk about all of that stuff today. So yeah, where do you want to start? Where should we possibly start? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm so thrilled to be here talking about this. I spend more time talking about suicide than probably any of the other topics I cover. I teach entire courses on suicide for the undergraduate and graduate levels. But I was so thrilled to begin bringing suicide workshops in general and also specifically suicidality workshops within the profession, too, um, to national conventions in death care, to NFDA, to CANA. And um, yeah, I think you and I had already connected, but you, I believe, were at my session last year at NFDA um, when I launched my two-hour on suicide. So, I mean, it's a privilege to always do this kind of professional education, but when it comes to suicide, like you, I've been personally affected, but also... There's just such a gap, I think, in public discourse and in the death care realm um, surrounding this cause of death, still very embedded in stigmas, still very embedded in myths, still very much surrounded by a cultural silencing. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm thrilled to jump in anywhere you want to start because there is a lot we could talk about. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we should start like from the very beginning. I mean, I think we all can understand why death and loss from suicide is stigmatized, right? It's mm -hmm. uncomfortable to talk about. It's scary on a deep level to think about mental illness, to think about those who are close to us having mental illness. But maybe we can start by talking about the effects of that stigmatization on grievers mm -hmm. and on society as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. The stigma, and I've said this in other interviews, I think what makes it so hard for us to start dismantling the stigma, the negative connotation with this form of death in particular, is because the stigma itself has such historical roots and is in itself dynamic. It didn't come from one place. The origins of suicide as, you know, a quote unquote bad thing or shameful thing didn't come from one cultural or state institution. It's coming from everywhere. And the historical roots have been reinforced through uh, religion and certainly in American culture, Protestant Christianity sort of uh, will find biblical support or origins to interpret suicide as the most unforgivable act of despair, the most unforgivable sin, Judas, um, if we're looking to the Christian gospels. Mm -hmm. And then we get messaging from healthcare that says suicide is just caused by depression, which we know is inaccurate. And that also, yeah, reinforces the stigma because mental illness is stigmatized in certainly Western culture, but many cultures. But we also have a lot of messaging contributing to the stigma that comes from um, even the humanities and philosophy and, you know, Camus studied suicide as the, you know, ultimate act of existential despair. But then we look to psychology and, you know, Freudian psychoanalytics on suicide as, again, something that's abhorrent and almost mm -hmm. like the product of an inability to function your own brain. And mm -hmm. all of this really contributes to putting the responsibility for becoming suicidal on the suicidal person, which is absurd and something that we don't do with hardly any other cause of death. 
Um, so if we look to something like suicide loss or even suicidality, you know, we're, we're looking at populations who are used to not being supported already. And then if a death happens and the family or the friends or the people surrounding this person who have died are trying to come to terms with the death, they're very embedded in all the stigma too. Even if they don't believe in it, even if they resist it, they're getting messaging that's being filtered through stigma as well as all of the profound misunderstandings and myths about what suicide is and how it happens. Woof. Yeah, that is deep and a lot. There's there's just like so much to unpack. I feel like we could do an entire hour just on stigma. We could. <laughs> yeah, much less getting into like the actual suicidality, like debunking myths around it. Yeah. And people in it. Yeah, that's that's just so much. And so we are faced with all of this cultural stigma. It comes from these different places. How do we dismantle that? I think the first place to start, and this is why I will happily, I said this on a phone call with um, a friend at NFDA the other day, I will spend every other week flying around the country doing public education on suicide if people ask me to. We need to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Step one in dismantling stigma is to start dismantling and breaking these silences around suicide loss and around suicidality, just as importantly, if we're looking also at prevention. And that could be something as simple as sharing stories of people we've lost to suicide and how it impacted us. And also those horror stories um, that I hear from people, from clients, from students all the time about how people didn't respond well um, or how people should have handled things better so that we have that kind of interpersonal teaching and learning to move past the, this sort of dominant cultural discourse. We also need to change the dominant cultural discourse. And I think with enough pushback, certainly speaking as a suicidologist, there's not many of us, but we need people in fields like education and healthcare and other helping professions to you know, do better than the kind of public awareness campaigns or education that's being handled from the top down. Mm-hmm. And as as strange as this might sound, it also means normativizing suicidality and Mm -hmm. understanding that this is not rare. You know, all of my public workshops on suicide, including the one you came to last year at NFDA, I always start by asking the room to share, just raise their hand if they've been professionally impacted by suicide. Almost everyone does because they're funeral directors or, you know, they're working somewhere in the funeral arena and death care arena. But then I ask them to raise their hand if they've been personally impacted by suicide, whether that is losing a loved one to suicide or being acutely worried about someone who is suicidal in their lives or having a history of suicidality or a suicide attempt. And I did it again this year when I gave my session on suicide risk within the death care professions Mm -hmm. and the shock on people's faces when they look around the room and realize almost everyone has their hand up is palpable every single time. And I know it's coming. I mean, I wish it were not the case, right? I wish so many people weren't. But I think knowing, you know, whenever you realize you're not the only person in a room or in a space who has been impacted by suicide one way or the other, it starts to dismantle this this silencing, this stigma that this is rare, that this is, you know, aberrant in some way, Mm -hmm. um, because it's incredibly common. 
when I teach my suicide courses here at URI or even in Marion, but mostly with my undergrads, usually about half of my students as freshmen or sophomores or juniors or seniors, young, have lost a friend to suicide by that age. And granted, this isn't a great sample set. Like some of them probably signed up for the course for that very reason. But when they start also talking about intrusive thoughts they've had or feeling that they had a period of suicidality or are grappling with sort of early stage suicidality and they can break through the shame to talk about it, they realize they're never going to be the only person in a room that size who has felt that way. And I think that also dismantles stigma and makes it easier too, importantly, to encourage people to get the help that they need. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a really important aspect of it because that was really shocking and also like comforting for me as someone who has lost a close family member to learn is because when I did experience that loss, and again, podcast listeners have heard this story and you know the story well, but for the sake of posterity, I'm going to say it again. So, you know, at the funeral, even there was like this sense of shame around Mm -hmm. talking about it. And it was seen as this really indecent thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I heard people lying about the way that my mom passed. Yes. I heard people trying to cover it up. Like it was this embarrassing mm-hmm. smudge on our family's reputation. Mm-hmm. And that impacted me in, in very palpable negative ways for many, many years to come and made me feel very isolated, made me feel mm-hmm. like I couldn't talk about it, made me feel like my feelings around it, all the grief, but also the anger, the disappointment, the I mean, anger, rage that I was yeah. feeling, and also guilt. And, mm-hmm. you know, all of that was kind of brushed under the rug because we couldn't even talk about it. We couldn't even acknowledge that that thing had yeah. happened. And so there was nowhere for those feelings to go. Mm-hmm. And I was very confused about how to speak about my relationship with my mom, which was very tumultuous in her mental illness. And that too seemed like something shameful that should be covered up. But then, you know, moving into adulthood, moving into the death care space, meeting you learning how common this is, you know, and, and, and honestly losing other loved ones in my life to suicide between that first occurrence with my mom. And now it, it is sad and it is, you know, there is a lot to be done, but it is also a revelation to discover just how common it is, Yeah, which drives home the point that we need to have healthier conversations around it. We need to have more conversations around it, honest, flawed conversations around it, because yeah, that's the only way that I think we're going to have change. So it's really wonderful and inspiring to hear you reiterating that again. Thank you. Yeah, that might lead into another point that I want to talk about, which is kind of adjacent to this and something that you've talked about on the podcast a little bit before, which is how to talk to someone who's grieving in a way that does not disenfranchise their experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's a real, real sensitive thing when it comes to suicide. It is. It's incredibly. And You know, I work with clients and with students who can recite verbatim horrifying things that Mm -hmm. people said to them word for word years and years ago, Mm -hmm. whether they were friends or family friends or family members or sometimes funeral service professionals. Mm -hmm. And so when I do my workshops on suicide and certainly all my courses on suicide, we always tackle language first and then we talk about communication. It is really gratifying to have seen in the last few years 
uh, more of a resistance in media and news, et cetera, mm -hmm. from saying committed suicide. I mean, that's where we should start with language, right? That mm -hmm. we should not be treating suicide as a criminal act or, or carrying this cultural hangover of when suicide was criminalized. Mm -hmm. We would never say that about any other cause of death. We wouldn't say it about, you know, someone heart attacked themselves, someone committed cancer. Um, yep. So that is absurd to begin with. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and also, I think in terms of the sensitivity and care needed when supporting someone who is bereaved by suicide, understanding that you need to let that person call the shots in terms of those conversations. A lot of people I have worked with who are suicide loss survivors are used to people hijacking the narrative mm -hmm. and hijacking their personal narrative of, of grief, not just the narrative of what happened. Mm -hmm. um, because we are so scared of talking about suicide and also don't really culturally usually understand suicide, the kind of speculation imposed narrative, this is what happened, this is why it happened, um, is really problematized with suicide because we never know all of the reasons why someone attempts suicide and dies of suicide. Mm -hmm. We never know. Whatever we know is the tip of the iceberg of what was going on with them. Mm -hmm. But people come up with these stories and then they impose them on people. And they also come up with these reinforcements and myths that also push these stigmas and push them on people that suddenly this person you loved was maybe selfish to one person. This feels selfish to me. How could they do this to their spouse, to their kids mm -hmm. and to someone else? It'll be, well, they had mental illness all these years. So that's the narrative. That's all this was. Um, or if it's a very religious context, depending on religion um, that, you know, they're going to hell um, mm -hmm. And this is these are all horrible messages that might all be happening at the same time to a survivor from different people in their community. And mm -hmm. that that means that we have to almost undo the harm that is done for these survivors before we can even begin to hope to help them, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely does. And all of those things are things that I personally experienced and mm -hmm. especially the like very religious connotation of, you know, people being like, oh, it's like even worse to hear that that's what the case was, you know, when, when I finally did talk about it with people and, um, yeah. So like, what, what do you recommend for survivors? You know, like, like yeah. counseling therapy or their support groups? Like what, what do you as a professional recommend? I definitely recommend therapy if, um, therapy is something that, uh, someone is inclined to try. I'm very pro therapy. I'm also very pro shopping around for therapists mm -hmm. yes, and for the right pro. kind of therapy, right? Mm -hmm. We're seeing a real rise depending on the cause in DBT over CBT. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like that trend personally mm -hmm. and in other forms of trauma therapy. But I think also something that can be really helpful for survivors is getting into suicide loss specific support groups. Yeah. Um, so it would not maybe be very helpful for someone who lost a child to suicide or a partner to suicide just to go to a support group for people who lost partners or lost kids, because it's going to be such a different experience to have lost a partner to say suicide versus something like brain cancer, both mm -hmm. horrible, but there's not going to be that shorthand of 
okay, I, I don't know what you're feeling because we're all different and our grief is unique, but we have more similarities in terms of what we're dealing with from the outside world, um, as well as the shock of suicide and the trauma that can come from suicide. So I would definitely say checking in with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention on local chapters that run support groups, um, because they also do aftercare. Um, the American Association for Suicidology has support groups listed state to state. A lot of them have gone virtual now, which can be really helpful for people. Um, and sometimes churches and communities do offer these kinds of support groups. So those I think are great. Talking about it though, I mean, I don't have to tell you, sometimes our best supports are just like having the right person in our life who is willing to give us the time and the space to emotionally ventilate without judgment, um, who will not guide the conversation for us. Um, you know, going back to your question on communication, you know, who will not say things like, you must be feeling so mm -hmm. fill in the blank, or I can't believe they did this to you. Um, you know, there's no space for that here because we can't, we can't be guiding these grievers where we think they should be ever. But with suicide, given the stigma and given the nature of it, um, we especially should be giving people space to just run through the cycling um, that has to happen sometimes. You know, in narratology, which crosses over with thanatology a bit, um, there's a phrase called getting it right. And it speaks to the story that the survivor tells. And they'll tell that story over and over and over. And with suicide, what we've observed is that the most minute details are going to get cemented in the brain through the telling. I remember exactly what time it was when I got the phone call. Or I remember what I was cooking for dinner. Um, and some of those details, if they start telling these stories, might seem completely superfluous and extraneous. But they're purposeful in terms of meaning making and in working through coming to terms with the loss as it happened. Um, so a suicide survivor is more likely to tell that story to you over and over and over and over. And maybe little tweaks will happen here and there. And that's part of their grief work, too. Um, so, again, like finding people, whoever they are. Um, whether they're professionals or whether they're just our chosen family or whomever who will listen without judgment, who will validate all of our emotional responses, even the ones we don't understand, right, or they don't understand in us, and who will not guide the narrative, and who will also offer reasonable support without over-promising mm -hmm. what they can and can't do for us. Like, right. Obviously, you know, doing what I do, I have sort of different professional privilege in what I can do with a student or a client um, or a friend, um, but we all need to know our limits. And certainly, like my students will say, how can I support my friend who is grieving? I always tell them, don't promise things you can't deliver on and don't promise things that are beyond your either education level or your credentials to do. Um, but you could say, you know, you can't be your friend's therapist. And even if you're a therapist, you can't be your friend's therapist. Right. But you right. could say as a friend, listen, I hear you. I want to be here for you. I'm going to keep being here for, for you through this loss. Uh, would it be helpful also, though, if we sat down together and maybe started researching some local therapists? 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point because something that is important to say is is when it comes to people we care about experiencing grief, when the grief is like removed from us personally a little bit and we see someone that we care about hurting. I don't want to speak for everyone, but for me at least, there is a, a large ingrained sense of like, I need to fix it. And then mm-hmm. when we can't fix it, right, that's when we resort to the well, at least statements or, mm-hmm. oh, you must be feeling this way, whatever mm-hmm. the, the disenfranchising statements are. And so understanding that it's not your responsibility to fix someone else's pain, whether that be the person who is experiencing suicidality mm-hmm. in your life or the person who has lost someone to suicide in your life, that just being there and listening mm-hmm. is enough, right? Yeah. Like it is, it's not your responsibility. And that's something that I want to make sure the message gets out there because yeah, I'd made yeah. it my responsibility yeah. to fix my mom. I made it my responsibility to fix my family. I made it, you know, and, and it's taken years of therapy to walk that back and be like, that's actually, that's not my responsibility. Mm-hmm. And, and just listening to others mm-hmm. is, a, yeah. is a real act of care. Yeah. I mean, we can never usefully put ourselves in a position to try to fix another person's grief because mm-hmm. grief can't be fixed. Grief just mm-hmm. has to be you know, worked through and, you know, we don't get over loss, we get through it. And Mm -hmm. that takes time. It does navigate better if you have support, obviously, um, which is even more challenging with these stigmatized forms of death. But I think too, there's this uh, inverse boomerang effect where if we're trying so desperately to fix another person's grief or to fill in all the needs for that person that we perceive they have, we're going to miss the needs they really have and they're not going to feel like they can communicate them um, because suddenly now we're in charge, <laughs> not right. them. Right. And that's, that's hard, but I understand the struggle yeah. for sure. And I think those of us who have gravitated toward vocations versus just jobs, right. Mm-hmm. And who are more empathic people to begin with. And maybe also had that, you know, childhood development of either needing to be more of an adult than you should have had to be at that age, which I sometimes resonate with as well, um, where you are, there are expectations there that you will take care of yourself, but also that you're going to be the kind of person who takes care of other people that gets ingrained. Um, And yeah, again, the best way to help people grieving from suicide loss is to ask them how to help them. And even if they say, I don't know, be like, well, then can I just hang out for a while? We don't have to do anything. Let's put on a movie. And when you're ready to talk, I'm going to be right here. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. That's all really important to know. And a lot of times I think the answer might be, I don't know, because like when we're activated, when we are, you know, having difficult emotions, often we don't know what's going to feel good. Otherwise we do that thing. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do always find that, you know, yeah, presence and listening patiently without the expectation of fixing things, without judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that is enough. And so, yeah, I and, and patience with the circuitousness. I yeah. mean, especially in yeah. the early days, weeks, months, sometimes longer after a suicide yeah. death loss, the survivor might be talking in circles a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, so that comes with a lot of patience to know, to not say, yeah, you told me this before, 
or you yep. just said that, um, to know that that's all part of the talk, the talk yes. cure, quote unquote, of grief. Yeah. I don't even like to use the word healing, but moving through it is never linear. Mm-mm. Like grief is not linear. Pain is not linear. Healing any part of our emotional well-being is not linear. It is a spiral. It is an up and down with peaks and valleys. It is, yeah, never linear. And so a person processing is not going to be linear either. And yeah. 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 And yeah. I, I am very much a verbal processor and people in my life, even 17 years later now, after the fact, have, sometimes I will just get in a space where I need to say something that they have heard before and we all know it. And that's just what needs to happen. Yeah. And yeah. I think, I mean, even this podcast is a beautiful example of that. I talk about my mom so much on this podcast and it is helpful for me as I hope it is helpful for other people mm-hmm. to hear, mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, process and share in that way. And yeah, so that patience is another really important aspect of it. Well, and that goes back to breaking silences and Mm -hmm. to whether it is through the kind of public education that y'all are doing through this or academic that I'm doing or public, whatever, professional. Um, If we can stand in front of a room or sit behind a microphone and say, I lost someone to this, Mm -hmm. um, then it does start to lessen. It just chips away a little at that stigma and you don't know who's listening and you don't know who might be thinking, maybe it's time for me to start talking about this. Maybe it's okay Mm -hmm. to say, Hey, I know we all said this was a heart attack, but actually Mm -hmm. it wasn't. And I need to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. So important. Well, thank you for this really important work that you do and Yeah. Thank you for sharing it with us here at Death Curious and our listeners and the wider world out there. If people want to find your work out in the world, where do they go? Where do they go? Um, Well, first of all, thank you for for doing this and for having me on. And I know we could go forever because we're also friends and I adore you (laughs) and all of your mission and all of your work and everything you're doing over there. I can be found through my website probably most easily. It's www.deathdoc.com, which I only chose as a domain on a dare from a friend. <laughs> Dr. Death was taken, so it's deathdoc.com. Um, and I can be emailed through there as well. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been, as always, such a pleasure. You're a cherished friend, and I'm happy to know you. Same, same. I'm very lucky that we came into each other's lives. I agree. Ah. This podcast and Death Curious are brought to you by Parting Stone. For more information about Parting Stone and solidified remains, go to partingstone.com.